The continuing resolution Congress is debating is sort of like COVID. You know it's coming, but how bad will it be? CRs can go for days or they can go for months. Last year's went nearly halfway through the fiscal year. For how this one is shaping up, we turn to Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And Lauren, they're going up to the final wire as they always do. That's why there are CRs. But what is this one beginning to look like? Well, it's still a work in progress. Uh, We have two weeks here to fund the government before September 30th, which is one of the two big dates on the calendar. The other one is November 8th and Election Day, and those two dates are kind of intertwined here. So what they're trying to figure out is how long the CR will run, what will ride along with it. The date it's going to run to has kind of been agreed upon that they'll take this into December, get past the elections, give themselves time to come back from those and figure out what to do either for the full year or maybe another CR. Um, There's different preferences there, I'm sure. But what's really holding it up at this point is what's going to ride along with it. And key to that is a promise that Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, got in exchange for his vote on the climate tax and health care package that was passed back in August. He got a promise that they would pass a bill dealing with the permitting rules for the federal government. Um, This has become the most attractive vehicle for it. But there's a lot of uh, give and take and back and forth between the sides on what that language is going to be and can it go in there and what does that mean for the number of votes you'll have to actually pass it. And then there's all sorts of other ride-alongs that I'm sure we can talk about. Yeah, that uh, permitting reform was something that Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, promised to Joe Manchin. But it sounds like Schumer didn't really have what it takes power-wise or whatever to necessarily deliver on it because Bernie Sanders has come out against it and some other senators. So it was the word of one, but it may not be something that he can actually deliver. And he's also said, by the way, that he's gotten the same promise from Joe Biden, the president, and from Speaker Nancy Pelosi in the House that this is something that would get done. The problem is you've got one math problem. How do you get a majority in the House? How do you get 60 votes in the Senate to pass a continuing resolution by the deadline of September 30th? And if you add this provision in, what do you start losing in terms of progressive support for this? So, you know, Democrats have no majority technically in the Senate. It's 50-50. Kamala Harris can come in and break a tie, but she doesn't have a say in a cloture vote. Um, In the House, they have a very narrow majority. So if you need to figure out how much Republican support does this permitting bill get me versus how many do I lose, that's going to come into it. The other issue is that Republicans aren't necessarily the biggest fan of the permitting bill that Joe Manchin wants. They might want their own version. So it's kind of threading the needle between all of this is proven to be a challenge is that that's one of the reasons that they didn't get this done last week and are coming back this week to work on it. Yeah, because there's a whole presidentially appointed panel on permitting reform, but I don't think it has any say over state permitting process. And this bill may or may not have an effect on what states do. And ultimately, they can weigh in on even a project the federal government permits. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of interest in what individual projects will deal with here. And one of them is a project in West Virginia, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, that's become sort of one of the top items that this bill would potentially affect. So as you know, there's a lot that goes into this and permitting reform comes up a lot. And um, the processes for pushing projects forward, when you talk about a broad infrastructure bill, or you talk about, uh, you know, energy bill, this is often a topic that's brought up. And this is an attempt to move that forward. What other riders would be attached or potentially attached to the CR that could either speed it through or get it hung up? 
Well, some of the things that President Joe Biden asked for a couple of weeks ago in his anomalies list and his list of needs are still being discussed. A big one is aid for Ukraine, continuing to send money there so that supplies can be bought and to help that country as it continues to push back the Russian invasion. There's a request for COVID aid and monkeypox aid. That's gotten a bit of a cooler reception on Capitol Hill than the Ukrainian aid has gotten. And then there's also other expiring programs that could hitch a ride. A big one are programs that are funded by user fees that the FDA and industry negotiate with each other to fund programs. So the medical device industry, the prescription drug industry, they've made these negotiations. They need to just enshrine them into law. And that's a must-pass bill whenever those fees are running out. That's the case now. But the question is, do they do it separately with other health provisions that House and Senate members want to make? Or is it something that they put in the CR to get it done and maybe they lose some of those broader things? There's also members who want to use this bill to do something on school meals. There are other programs that are expiring, like I said, that could get attached. So this is a pretty attractive vehicle. It's the one thing that they have to get done, basically. They have to fund the government by September 30th is the goal or shortly thereafter if it comes to that. So it's an attractive vehicle for a lot of these things. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. And the number for the continuing resolution, the budget number, that's not really all that debatable for the most part because it's simply what it is they enacted for the current fiscal, correct? That's right. So you basically pull last year's appropriations bill into the new year, sometimes with adjustments that are known as anomalies, where you might give more for one program and take away from another, often because you know some programs don't need as much as they did the year before, and you can use that in other places. But the real issue is you don't do that for every account. A budget request and an appropriations bill every year does a lot of changes throughout the agencies. This really makes just the most important ones that have to be done in the short term to keep things going. But the overall number isn't really an issue here. That's what the full-year appropriations package, those 12 bills that are kind of stalled right now and not moving, where they will make those decisions. Right. And the other calculus then is how long the CR will go in the first place, because we've seen, you know, inching the needle along day by day, two days, the weekend. And then sometimes I think I've seen full year in my career here of covering this kind of stuff. So do we have a sense of when they want it to end? That is their deadline for actually passing appropriations bills. It sounds like it's going to be into December, which makes sense. Get past the election, get past Thanksgiving, because they will be in for a couple of days in between Election Day and Thanksgiving, but really use that early December period to figure out what to do. There is pressure to get a full year deal. Some of that's coming from Appropriations Chairman Patrick Leahy and Vice Chair Richard Shelby, the Democrat and Republican in the Senate. It's their last year. They're both retiring. They would like to get this package done. They would like to get earmarks out of it, which those are back, and that's pretty attractive. So I could see there being a lot of pressure to get this done before the end of the year so that next year's appropriators have a kind of a clean slate. There will be pressure on the other side, though, potentially from Republicans if they pick up one or both chambers to push it into next year and use their leverage with one of those two majorities to try and shape the bills more to their liking. And right now they're written all by Democrats, although you do need Republican support to get things through the Senate. But being in control of one of the chambers gives you a lot more say in how um, the package could be written next year. So I think a lot of this will take until after the election to see if we'll get that full year bill before December 31st, or if it will maybe take until next year. And to use up bandwidth that Congress has. Anything else? I mean, the abortion bill that Senator Lindsey Graham doesn't seem, that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Nobody wants to have a vote now on it. I don't think either Republicans or Democrats. But what about appointments? Will that take up some time in the Senate? And the Electoral Count Act, too, is that's kind of looming also. 
That is. So on the Senate side, we have some judicial votes locked in for this week. I think there's a cloture vote tonight on one judge. They're going to retake a vote that wasn't successful last week and keep churning through those. There were a lot of still vacancies in the judiciary that they want to fill while they know they have the majority and can push those through with just 50 votes. Uh, there could be a vote on a campaign finance bill that may not be successful, but maybe a chance for Democrats to talk about that in the Senate. On the House side, there's a bill coming from Zoe Lofgren and from Liz Cheney about changing the Electoral Count Act, which President Trump obviously tried to use some ambiguities in that potentially to um, overturn and challenge the results of the 2020 election. They're trying to change some of those rules to prevent that in the future. Um, whether that language will be tied up and ready to go this week is something else we'll be watching to see. That's an issue that could also be dealt with in the lame duck. One thing we don't expect at this point to move is the NDAA, the Defense Authorization Act. There was some talk about maybe trying to do that in September, but the clock is really working against them. Um, and we also saw that the vote on same-sex marriage that some senators wanted to have before the election seems to have slipped to the lame duck as well. So this calculus and the dwindling number of days is kind of shaping the agenda here at this uh, this point. Lauren Duggan is deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One 
I don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups, you might get this experience. But really, where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're 
passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.